You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi Sweet Jacobson with NRM Streamcast, and we'll spend our time talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. You can always send your questions and comments to our mailbag at letstalktorah.gmail.com. And, of course, I will answer as many as I can. Or you can go to our amazing webpage at letstalktorah.net. Yes, that's letstalktorah.net. And you can go to the archives. You can search for shows. You can catch up on the latest shows. And, of course, you can send me comments. You can send me questions. And we will answer them. And you can hit that donate button. And that would be amazing. If you could just go hit that donate button... That will be so helpful. The show can grow. We can get more people involved. We can take care of our costs in this amazing studio here. And uh, we can even send out a happy birthday, happy anniversary, in memory of whatever works for you. But please hit one of those four donate levels. That's really appreciated and really helpful for the continuation of the show. And of course, if you want to remain anonymous, you can do that as well. As this is like a part two Right, we're right up to Yom Kippur, so we're we're gonna be ready for part two of our Yom Kippur uh, show. The last one was more philosophical, a little deeper, uh, you know, just getting involved in like what's happening and what are we trying to do. But I got all these great stories and and history and other things I wanted to get involved in, so we sort of broke it up into two parts, and we're we're a little lighter for part two of the show. So we're talking about Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year, this special day where we get to build a special relationship with God. And we need to look back a little bit. What is the history? What happened on Yom Kippur? What is this special day? So if we go back, the Jewish people leave Egypt. We travel. We get to Mount Sinai. We receive the Torah. Moses comes down with the two tablets. Um, he was a little delayed, or we thought he was delayed in our calculation, and people got nervous. They thought Moses died. They went and built a, or made a golden calf as like an intermediary, intermediary between God and the Jewish people. That was a bad idea. Um, that becomes idol worship, and Moses sees it, and he breaks the tablets, and he crushes the idol and he makes everybody drink it and uh, people die and okay now Moses has to go for 40 days and 40 nights to pray to God that he shouldn't destroy the Jewish people and then he goes back for another 40 days because he broke the first tablets now he's got to get new tablets and he goes up and so it's been a, it's a 120 day process right he goes up to get the Torah on the 7th of Sivan he comes down to break the tablets on the 17th of Tammuz, um, he goes up to pray, comes back down, goes back up again on the first day of El, and he comes down with the second tablets on Yom Kippur, the 10th day of Tishrei. And God makes a clear statement, I have forgiven 
the Jewish people. Right? I forgive like you requested, Moses. And uh, interesting in the conversation that Moses has with God, like, yeah, it's amazing. Moses is the leader. Like, he gets it. So he tells God, he says, you know, you got to forgive the Jewish people. God's okay. Forgive, I forgive the Jewish people. And now Moses, he doesn't just ask for little things, right, which is anyways a lesson, right? When you talk to God, the, the benefit in asking for little things is because you recognize that God takes care of you. But really, really, you should go all out, right? You ask for everything because, like, what's the difference? God gives you $10, a million dollars, it's all the same. We're, like, embarrassed, like, no, God's not going to give me a million. He'll give me 10. Like, wh- why not go all out? So God says, I can't travel with the Jewish people. They're, they're, they're just too, <coughs> too stiff-necked, too brazen, too stubborn. I'll send my angel with him. So Moses, nope, God, you've got to travel with us. And God says, okay. And Moses says to God, you got you to gotta, you gotta teach me how to pray. You got you to gotta show me. And uh, God does. Teach him what's called the 13 attributes. And Moses says, um, you can't, uh, it's, it's just the Jewish people. You can't have prophets uh, amongst the nations of the world. You only talk directly to the Jewish people. And God says, okay. Amazing. Like, whoa. Right? So all this is taking place. Moses coming down on Yom Kippur and Moses telling the Jewish people they've been forgiven. And this, this is a powerful day. And therefore, this becomes the day in history that every year since then we will fast. But this is not a sad fast. This is a fast just we're being like angels. Right? The whole day. We are trying to be spiritual. We are trying to be special. It's all in the attitude. Yes, when I was younger, I dreaded, oh, man, Yom Kippur's coming. I'm going to have to fast. I have to be in synagogue all day long. Such a long day. I dread. I love Yom Kippur. I look forward to Yom Kippur. You know, we're busy working year-round. I love what I do. I love it. But I love a day that I have an opportunity, me and God. I love it. It's just an amazing thought that God created this day for us. Right? It's just, just, just that alone is amazing. So I tell you, I have a bunch of stories. Let me throw in a story now before we go on. Now, this story is really a Shana story, but, but you'll get the, the concept of it. So in the concentration camp, and I don't remember which one it took place in, so the one of one of the one of the great rabbis, his name was the Rebbe of Radishitz. In nineteen forty-three, he wanted a chauffeur for Rosh Hashanah. Now how he thought he's gonna be able to blow a chauffeur, right, with all the guards, like they see you doing something Jewish, they'll come shoot you. But he said I must have a chauffeur. And they told him, it's not happening. Like his different uh, you know, people were with him and helping him and, and trying to do what they could for him and they respected him. First they said it can't be done. Then they said, we don't even have one. Like, where am I going to get a chauffeur from? So, um, so they bribed a, a Polish peasant to bring them the head 
of a ram or a sheep so that they could uh, cut off the horn and make a chauffeur. Well, the problem was they brought in the head of a bull, which is not helpful because a bull's horn is not kosher for a chauffeur. He didn't give up. They again bribed, and this time he got it right. I'm not sure if it was a sheep or a ram, but I think it was the, they brought him in the head of a ram. And they went to one of the workers who worked in the metal shop. And they said, okay, you got to make a chauffeur. He says, I don't know how to make a chauffeur. He says, look, there's the head of this ram, this horn over here. you got to clean out the inside. you got to cut off the front. you got to drill a hole in there, smooth it out, and we got a chauffeur. Um, and the Rebbe told this guy, I promise you, if you get me this chauffeur, you are surviving the war. Okay? Guy says, I'm in. So he creates this chauffeur. I can't tell you if it was highly polished and as pretty as, as the ones you've seen. And it's rush on the morning. And they fill the Rebbe's barracks packed with people. And, and you could feel the holiness in the worst place in the world, in a concentration camp where they were all suffering, but they were all there. They were on fire. They felt God. And he blew that chauffeur, and the, the, the emotion, it was powerful. It was amazing. They felt connected. Happens to be this guy who made the chauffeur ended up after the war marrying um, the, this Rebbe's daughter. And they did, in the end, find the chauffeur. He somehow tracked it down. Um, and this chauffeur happens to be in Yad Vashem. So the chauffeur happens to exist. But that's just, you know, trying to get a feeling, trying to recognize, trying to understand that part of Yom Kippur is just this intense emotional connection to God. And that's the opportunity that everybody has on Yom, uh, on Yom Kippur. That's what the day is for. Right? The day is to just take it in. It's you and God. And, and to enjoy, relish, cherish the time. Because it goes fast. As you know, even though I told you when I was younger, you dread the day, you know? I, I mean, for those who know what happens, right? You have your, your prayer book in front of you. And Yom Kippur has so many prayers, you go through the whole book in, in basically 24, 25 hours, the whole book. And sometimes you're sitting there saying, okay, there's 73 pages left to this set of prayers. And if he can do each page in one minute, so in one hour and 13 minutes, like you, you do this kind of stuff. But now, now the day goes by so fast. The day is just flying. There's just not enough time. And the pages are turning so fast. And, and you don't want to lose the connection. And then all of a sudden, there's that chauffeur blowing at the end of the day. The day is over. And I, I you know, it's like, you know, sometimes people will, will uh, take a trip, will fly out to meet a friend. And you go out to eat. And you'll hang out. You'll talk about old times. And you'll laugh. And you'll feel good. And, and, and you'll you look at your watch like, where did all the time go? And i got to get back on that plane in an hour. And it was so great to be together. we got to do this again. Right? 
that's a little bit what we're thinking about. Okay. Talking about about what's happening on, on Yom Kippur. So we don't have it now. Now we have a prayer book. Now we're in synagogue. And now we're praying. And now we're connecting. But early on in the time of the tabernacle, in the time of the temple, the base of Migdash, this day belonged to the Kohen Gadol, to the high priest. He did everything. They moved him into his own chambers a week before Yom Kippur. And he practiced. And he checked out which animals he was going to be sacrificing. And he studied. And, and they, they worked with him. And they discussed. And certain things were more difficult. And some of the things he had to do, I don't know how he did it. Like, it's called hard stuff. But they trained for it. And he get to enter the Holy of Holies like four times. And he's gonna go in. He's gonna bring in the. Uh, he's gonna bring in the, his, the 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 incense. It's called the ketores. And he's gonna burn that over a a, a a pile of coals that he brought in. And he's gonna go back and forth. And he's gonna spritz the blood from a cow and blood from a goat. And and then eventually he's gonna have to come back in and remove the fire pan that he brought in. I only gets to go in a couple times. Like a, a whole part of the service just to get into the this most amazing holy area. That's where the, the first temple, the ark was there with the with the tablets. The second temple, um, it was just a room. There was a stone there um, because the ark was put away towards the end of the first temple. And it was like super concentrated holy. Like you understood this was the place, right? The high priest had to be careful about every thought going into his mind because he could get killed in a second. And the truth is it's like fascinating because in the first temple, it's debatable, there were 12 high priests, there were 18 high priests. Okay, you talk about 20, uh, 21 years of service on average. And you weren't going to be a young man because you had to be the, like, the rabbi, the one with, filled with holiness. You, uh, you know, however they, they knew, you, you knew who was the biggest rabbi. This wasn't really a political game. You knew who the greatest rabbi was amongst the priests. You, you knew who it was, and you, you moved him into the position. In the second temple... I was in my class about this today. There were over 300 high priests. And the first couple were there, Shimon Tzadik was like 40 years, and, and uh, Yechanan was there like 80 years, and was, uh, another one was 15 years, and that was 11 years. And now you got another 300 plus. Because what happened? They didn't deserve the position. Many of them by the middle where you had to pay off the Roman Caesars and you gave a treasure chest filled with diamonds, jewels, gold, whatever you felt like, and you bought, you bought the position. Now, I ask my class, I ask this to people all the time, right, let's think about this. So over the last 50, 60 years, um, every high priest didn't make it out alive. And if he made it out alive... He died a few days later. So uh, one after another, these high priests were dropping dead. So you're going to pay a million dollars for the opportunity to go into the Holy of Holies so that you could die. Like, why? What are you, what are you thinking? 
You're going to pay a million dollars to die? Like, why? So I told my class, I said, there's people out there, and we, this is historic, by the way, when, when God gave the Torah, he had to warn Moses, I'm coming down to talk, they're going to want to come up on the mountain, build boundaries, warn them and warn them and warn them, if they climb up on the mountain, they're going to die. Their soul will not be able to uh, remain attached to their physical body. It's going to be impossible. But people have this desire for holiness. They will do anything because the soul is yearning, desiring, wants that holiness. And people mistakenly think that it's worth dying for holiness. Now, boy, my class says to me, but, but aren't the three cardinal sins you have to give up your life? I said, yes. I said, in general, the Torah wants you to live and be holy. The Torah does not want you to die for holiness. But there are exceptions. There are things that are just so terrible that, that the Torah wants you to give up your life for them. But in general, and the Torah wants you to live. So these high priests were misguided. They wanted that holiness. They were going to die over it. They knew they were going to die over it, but they wanted the holiness anyways. So again, on one side, there's what to be said for that, right? There's what to be said that you, you really want to get close to God. You're doing it the wrong way, right? But, but you want that holiness. So that's an amazing thought. So the high priest with all the things he's doing on Yom Kippur and he's descending off the goat that's going to be thrown off the cliff and, and he brings sacrifices and he's reading from the Torah and he's, 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 uh, he's doing what's called vidui where, where he says to God, you know, uh, the Jewish people, or the, or the priests, if they sin, please forgive them. So in these prayers or certain blessings, the high priest will say that special name of God and he will actually pronounce it properly. We don't pronounce it properly. First of all, we don't know how to pronounce it. Even if you look at the name of God with the, with the, with the um, what's called the nekudos, the, the way to pronounce the name, you physically cannot pronounce it. It doesn't work. You should not try. You're not allowed to try. But in any case... He would pronounce God's special name ten times. Now think about it. You know the temple is not. You've seen the Temple Mount. It's not that big of an area. You know what I mean? You, you start getting ten, twenty, thirty thousand people. It ain't no room, right? Even the by the Western Wall in that area. It's a big area. They're squeezing a hundred thousand people. Everybody wants to be by the Temple Mount on the holiest day of the year. It was so crowded. I know there's areas regular people can't even walk, right, where the, where, where the actual temple is and, and the altar and that area. You're not allowed to be there. So there's who knows how many thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, who knows how many people are there. You don't fit. The Talmud says it was so packed. You were like sardines. Like you could be actually lifted off the floor. Your feet didn't touch the floor. There's so many people. But it also says when the high priest said God's name ten times, everybody had to bow down on the floor. Well, well, my feet aren't even touching the floor. How exactly am I supposed to bow down? So the Talmud says it was a miracle, and when it came time to bow down, everybody had room. Miraculously, the ground spread. I don't know, you make up any story you want. 
Um, and everybody bowed down, and then as soon as the bowing was done, whoosh, everybody's standing up, and you were squashed again. So, of course, a boy says to me today, well, if you're, if you're so squashed that you're being held up in the air, why didn't you hurt yourself when all of a sudden there was room? You should have fallen down. So I told him, I said, I said, very good question. It's a very good question. I said, I think the answer is that if God's making a miracle that you're able to bow down, don't you think he's going to have in mind when he makes a miracle that you don't hurt yourself? I mean, like, does that make sense to you? So he smiled and said, "Um, yeah, I think that makes sense. So, um... You know, it was a, one of the great parables. It was just so powerful. There's a, the Dubna Magal was famous for, for his parables. And he tells the story of, uh, of the farmer who goes to the city. And again, the, when the, when the Dubna Magal says his parables, the farmers were always not that intelligent. And, uh, and the city people were very intelligent. And, you know, we're talking about all the things that are happening and paying attention and seeing, seeing what, what, you know, what we're supposed to take from the day. So he tells the story about a farmer who's uh, traveling with his friend. And he's, there, you know, walking on the train track. Right? It's the easiest way, train tracks. You just follow the tracks. And he's walking on the train track. And... In the distance, he sees the train, but he's walking on the track. Now, the train sees him, too, and the train starts, you know, pulling the whistle, like, get off the track, like, hello, are you paying attention? The farmer sees the, the train coming, hears the noise, and says, hey, hey, let's dance. Right? Like the music is coming, let's dance, right? He, he missed it, right? Now as the train is, the whistle is blowing, telling you wake up. And all he's doing is dancing, which is what we should be doing because the music is now playing. And I hope you enjoyed it, short and sweet. Thank you, of course, to all our wonderful sponsors. Listen, I can't do it without you. Thank you for production team. We have Alan in the back. I hope I've left you with some food for thought. Until next time, I am Rabbi T. Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah on NR Streamcast. Until next time, don't forget to think about it. There's a house we can build Every room inside is filled With things from far away Special things I compile Each one there to 